Amen. So Acts chapter 8, we pick up uh, our study in verse 9. And Luke records for us, Acts chapter 8, verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God should be per could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this ministry, for his heart, uh, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in, in many villages um, of the Samaritans. So as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through the uh, book of Acts, we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 8. And we noted last week that Acts chapter 8 is a turning point in the narrative of the church because it's in Acts chapter 8 that we see for the very first time that persecution is directed at the church uh, as a whole. And the result of this persecution is that the Christians left Jerusalem uh, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, we, we read. And we took a brief look, look last week at the commission that the disciples received from the Lord. They were told by Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They were um, uh, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told them, though, before you go, you need to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. But just before Jesus was received up into heaven, his last words to the disciples were, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. But it seemed like they were content with just hanging out in Jerusalem. You know, it doesn't appear like 
You know, they made much of an effort to fulfill that great commission. And so God allowed this persecution uh, to come upon the church to help get the disciples on with the business of preaching the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news. And we saw last week, because of this persecution, that Philip, he, he went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And we saw how the people heeded the things spoken uh, by Philip. And people who were possessed, people who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And as a result of all of this, there was in, those, in that city just great joy, it says. And now we pick up our story in verse 9. And it says in verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon. You know, it seems evident, at least to me, that every time God does something great, something wonderful, you know, something maybe even unimaginable, Satan's always there to try to come against it, try to put a stop to it, and if possible, to even destroy it. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Uh, you know, God might speak to your heart in church one Sunday, you know, and, you know, it's just a little bit of, Later that you're driving home and, and you get in an argument with your wife or with your husband. Um, maybe in your quiet time, God reveals something in his word. He opens his word to you and you're lifted up with encouragement. You know, you're just there praising the Lord, just thanking him for, for that revelation. But then later on, there's bad news that brings you down, brings you back down to earth. You know, I think of Peter, James, and John, they were with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw Jesus, it says, his face shining like the sun and his clothes become white as light. And with Jesus, Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah. I mean, that must have been the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences, right? But what was waiting for them down below? Well, it was a young man who was possessed by a demon that the disciples couldn't cast out. You know, Paul tells the church in Corinth and he tells us that we're not ignorant. We're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. You know, every time you have a great uh, spiritual victory, maybe a, a beautiful insight or you just experience a wonderful season of success and ministry, you can expect Satan will be there to try to put a stop to it somehow, some way. There's coming an attack. The enemy can come in like a lion to devour. But if that doesn't work, he's happy to come in as a serpent to deceive. And we read in uh, Acts 8, 8, man, there was great joy in the city. But the very next verse, verse 9, we read, but... There was a certain man called Simon. It says, verse 8, But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So from this verse, we learn that Simon, he was a sorcerer. And whether he had contact with some dark powers of evil or whether he was just a trickster, a charlatan, 
or just, you know, a sleight-of-hand magician. You know, we don't actually know. But we do know that Satan um, can work signs and wonders to deceive and oppose the work of God. However, he is limited in what he can do. Remember back in Acts chapter 7? Keep your finger here in Acts. But did I say Acts chapter 7? Exodus chapter 7. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 7. And we'll take a quick look at an instance of Satan's limited power. Acts chapter 7. You, you remember this chapter. Thank you. I got Acts on the brain. Uh, Exodus chapter 7. You remember this chapter. Um, picking it up in verse 10. says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh as they did so, just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. We see in these verses that Pharaoh calls the uh, wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians. So here's a question for you. How many sorcerers and magicians were there? Okay. Um, how many rods did they throw down, which became snakes? Well, you know, most people will say two. And the reason uh, they say two, they get that idea from the movie Ten Commandments. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be real. Cecil B. DeMille said it was so. Okay, uh, but if you're a student of the Bible, which we all should be, students of the Bible frequently will also say two. And then quote 2 Timothy 2, 3, verse 8, which says, now Janus and Jambres resisted Moses. Okay, but the right answer, the right answer would be, we don't know how many there were. Okay, there could have been two. But there could have been 200, right? Because it says Pharaoh also called the wise men, plural, and the sorcerers, plural, and the magicians, plural, uh, did the same thing with their enchantments. We just don't know how many there were. But whether it be two or 200, Exodus 7 verse 12 says, Aaron's rod, which became a serpent, swallowed up those, their rods. Man, Aaron's rod became a snake and it ate up all the rods of the sorcerers and the magicians that had became snakes. I mean, that must have been amazing to see and frightening at the same time, right? And even after seeing the spe this spectacle, we're told that Pharaoh's heart grew, grew hard towards the Lord. And if you drop down a little in Exodus 7, you see that Moses turns the Nile to blood. And we read in Exodus 7.22, then the magicians, plural, of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And then Exodus 8, God has Moses call frogs out of the rivers and the ponds. If you look at it, Exodus 8 verse 6 says that the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And we read again, next verse, Exodus 8, 7, that the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs 
on the land of Egypt. And at this time, Pharaoh must have been thinking, guys, you're not helping. You know what? If you can't help the situation, then don't do anything to make it worse. But that's how Satan works, right? Yes, he has power, and he will use it to put a stop to what God wants to do in an effort to keep people from the truth. And just like Pharaoh, if you give yourself to it or even just dabble in it a little bit, the result will be a hardened heart, just making the situation worse. And if you drop down a little bit more, right, uh, verse 16 there in Exodus 8, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. When the dust of the land became lice, and the magicians were at that point unable to counterfeit that miracle, that's when they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Satan will do signs and wonders in order to deceive, in order to keep people from turning to the Lord. But he's, in, he's limited in his powers and abilities by the Lord. So back in Acts, if you flip back to Acts, whether it was dark arts that Simon used in, in Acts 8 verse 9, or just trickery, he practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Verse, verse 10, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Simon claimed to be someone great. He was happy to hear uh, the least to the greatest applaud him, right? Uh, and refer to him, him not as a man of great power, but to refer to him as uh, a man that is the great power of God, right? Now, I don't know about you. Call me old-fashioned, but I think that's a problem. You know what? This happens to be, actually, it happens to be one of the traits of a false teacher, right? They'll claim to be someone who has a special insight, someone who is great by virtue of some special knowledge of God that they alone possess, that uh, they alone have discovered. And they're very willing to receive praise and glory because of it. And they're more than happy to have people, um, you know, talk about them and, and give heed to them. Jeremiah 9, uh, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the land. For in these I delight, says the Lord. I mean, what a contrast we have here. Simon sought to magnify himself. But Philip, when he came to Samaria, he preached Christ in order to magnify God. Simon, by sorcery, sought to draw people to himself, while the miracles which Philip did, empowered by the Holy Spirit, were used to validate his message and point people to Jesus. Right? It can be, actually, it is a problem in the church today. Today in the church, there's 
kind of a Christian celebrity status that some pastors and authors seem to have. Whether it's intentionally promoted that way or, or it just happens to be that way, I, I don't really know. But it seems like never before there are pastors, churches, worship leaders, um, authors who are talked about by Christians as someone great, right? And we need to be careful, I think, right? So often people ask me about this guy or that guy. Hey, have you heard about him? Or, or they'll ask me about a particular movement saying, hey, have you heard about what's going on, right? Honestly, I don't follow trends. When people ask me about these things, like, yeah, I don't know. But it's something that Christians need to be careful of. Right? I've seen so many pastors, movements, um, doctrines come and go over the years. You know, but the Bible says the word of our God endures forever. Right? The word of God and Jesus is our sure foundation. If we get our eyes on men or on a movement, you know, we will surely be let down. They'll let us down. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, he will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. He will never let us down. In verse 12, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. People believed what Philip preached about Jesus, and they were saved and they were baptized. And in verse 13, we see that Simon also seemed to believe in Jesus and was baptized. Now, there's a great controversy, a great deal of controversy over Simon, right? Was he a believer or wasn't he, right? And again, I don't know. And I hate to keep asking questions that I don't have the answer to. I'm just being honest with you. You know, I don't know. The truth is, we don't know. Up to this point, there's no indication that his faith wasn't genuine. And one could argue that he demonstrated enough faith and understanding of what Jesus did for him that Philip went ahead and baptized him, right? And it says that he continued with Philip. He spent time with Philip, presumably learning uh, more and seeking to learn more about Jesus Christ, right? But at the same time, verse 13 says that he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. It seems to suggest that he had some, you know, that he was fascinated with the supernatural. Now, to be fair, maybe that fascination may have come about just because, you know, he, he was a magician. Maybe he's done sleight of hand tricks for so long, he's, his fascination and amazement caused him just to try to see if what Philip was doing was real, you know, or not. You know, if Philip was a trickster like himself. But the reality is he's coming now face to face with genuine miracles. So maybe that was the reason for his fascination as any of us would be seeing a miracle. In verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. How the apostles in Jerusalem heard about what was going on down in Samaria, uh, again, we don't know. Whether it was Philip that sent word to Jerusalem to send them down uh, because of what was going on, or whether it was just that they heard in Jerusalem what was going on down in Samaria, again, we don't know. But however they heard, the result was Peter and John were sent to Samaria to check it out. Now, just uh, uh, as a side note, okay, verse 14 is the last we hear about the Apostle John in the book of Acts. He's mentioned again in Galatians 2.9. And of course, we have uh, books that he wrote, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, and of course, the gospel of John. But this is the last time in the Bible that we see John engaged in ministry. And I think it's important to note this because God is so good to us. And you might say, yes, he is. It's true. But what does that have to do with what we're talking about now? Just this. Last time we see John, he's going down to Samaria to see the work that God was doing down there. People receiving Christ. People getting baptized. And he's going there to pray for them, to lay hands on them, to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, keep your finger here in Acts and turn with me now to Luke chapter 9. Okay? Let's take a look at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he, speaking about Jesus, steadily set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. As they went, they entered the village of Samaria to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Last time John was in Samaria, he wanted to call down fire on the inhabitants of the city in order to destroy them. Now, in spite of John's past failures, God is now sending him to the Samaritans to pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit, just as he received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And how did that event manifest itself? Acts chapter 2, verse 3 says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one set upon each one of them. You know, I wonder uh, how John must have felt praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit on these people he once uh, wanted to destroy. You know, I wonder if he remembered how he wanted to call down fire from heaven down upon them. And now he's going there to pray for the people 
so that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? It's just so amazing to me, so encouraging to me, because God doesn't give up on us. Right? He's working an eternal work in each one of us, in you, in me, for his glory. In spite of our past failures, but we need to be yielded and moldable. We need to be surrendered so that he can do that work in us. Well, back in Acts, right, uh, it's really wisdom on behalf of Philip to call the apostles to come down or if the apostles just heard about what was going on down in Samaria, it was wisdom to send Peter and John to uh, check out what was going on there. Either way, whatever, however they got down there, it was wisdom. Let me give you four reasons why it's wisdom. First, uh, Peter and John coming down to pray for the Spirit to fall upon the new believers actually authenticates that it's a work of God to all those back in Jerusalem. It gives the work apostolic uh, approval. Secondly, the Holy Spirit falling upon the Samaritan, the same way it did the apostles in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, validates the message that Philip preached, right? Um, that of forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, and a promise of heaven. Thirdly, and probably most importantly, the Samaritans are now linked with the church in Jerusalem. Uh, they're one body now. They're not just some new denomination or a, a separate movement. And then the fourth reason I think it's uh, wisdom is because it's fulfilled prophecy. Right? When Jesus asked his disciples back in Matthew 16, who do men uh, say that I, the Son of Man, am? Right? They said some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, you know, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, as you know, he, uh, you know, stands up and he answers. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And after, Jesus, after that, Jesus told Peter that that was a revelation that he had received from the Father. And he said to the Peter, just, he said, and I will give you the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. How interesting is it that Peter stood up and preached Christ on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 Jews and proselytes were, from all over uh, were saved that day. And now Peter goes to Samaria and prays for the, the Spirit to descend upon the Samaritan believers there. And later in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see Peter share Christ with Cornelius and his family. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them as he was speaking, you know, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven and he opens the door, so to speak, for the spirit to fall upon the Jews, the Samaritans and the Gentiles in fulfillment of the words of Jesus. This is where people will often ask, well, how do I receive the Holy Spirit? You know what? We receive the Holy Spirit when we ask Jesus to Forgive us of our sins and to come into our hearts. Ephesians 1, <clears throat> excuse me, Ephesians 1, <clears throat> 13, 14, <clears throat> excuse me, says, In him you also trusted after hearing the word 
of truth, the gospel of your salvation, <clears throat> in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There can be at that time when you give your heart to the Lord, when you ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, there can be at that time a coming upon of the Holy Spirit, an empowering of the Holy Spirit uh, at the time you believe, like it happened with Cornelius, right? Or it can be a separate, subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit, like we see here with the Samaritans and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Either way, if you want the empowering of the Holy Spirit, all you have to do is ask for it. Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said, and I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father uh, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Hey, man, my kids ask me for good stuff. I'm willing to give it to them. And compared to God, I am wicked, evil. So how much more our Father would give the Holy Spirit if we just ask him, right? And it's just so funny because in the prayer meeting, Bernie said it. We got to keep asking, right? Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, right? The Greek is literally be continually being filled with the Spirit, right? It's to be a continual, ongoing process. Why? Because we're leaky vessels. And when you ask God the Father to fill you with the Holy Spirit, you may see a manifestation at that time, like on the day of Pentecost. You know, you may feel something as the Spirit is poured out upon you. And you may see or feel nothing at all, right? We're not after signs that we can see or feelings that we can feel. The key to receiving the Holy Spirit in order to be a witness for Jesus is one, to ask, two, to believe, right? That the Lord promised that the, he would give the Spirit to all who would ask. And then three, you got to receive him by faith. Right? God says he'll give the Spirit to all that ask. The only question is, do you believe it? Verse 18 says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Apparently, Simon uh, sees some outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers that Peter prays for. And like a magician does, he offers money so that he can possess the power to do that trick, right? This is where we get the word simony. Have you ever heard that word, simony? It's the idea of buying or selling a position within the church. It was a widespread problem in the Catholic Church in the 9th and 10th centuries. In 1032, the office of Pope was purchased for Pope Benedict IX by his parents, when he was just 12 years old, can you believe it? The practice of simony, at least the term, originates from this verse, right? Verse 18, and when, um, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands on, uh, lay hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. 
The problem here, actually, there's a lot of problems here. But a major problem here is that Simon sees the Holy Spirit simply as a power, right? He wants the power so that he can control it and give it to whomever he wants. Simon seems to be consumed with a desire to be seen by others as someone special, someone who has power, someone who can throw the woogie-woogie on, on anyone uh, he wants to, whoever he desires to. And the problem is that he sees the Holy Spirit as a power for him to control, right? Instead of seeing the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead to whom he should submit to, right? For the believer, it's never how much of the Holy Spirit you have that's important. It's how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? That's really the big question. How much of you does the Holy Spirit really possess and control? Something that we all need to ask ourselves. Would to God that we would be absolutely surrendered to him, you know, filled with him, led by him, consumed uh, with him solely for his glory. That's my prayer. That's my greatest desire. And that's my heart for our church, for our fellowship. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps that thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Some people, after reading these verses, say, wow, Peter, I mean... Sounds a little harsh. I mean, he's a new Christian. Cut him some slack. Actually, what Peter says is even harsher than what you might think. Uh, if you read the J.B. Phillips Bible, he translates verse 20 like this. But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God with money? Then in his footnote, he makes this comment. This is really what the Greek says. It is a pity that modern English usage obscures the literal meaning. I mean, the crazy thing is that Simon thought that he could buy the gift of God when it's free. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Again, beautiful verses. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Salvation is free to whoever desires it. It's free to us, but it costs Jesus everything. Well, actually, I think maybe on second thought, maybe Jesus offers salvation to us, yet it costs us everything also, at least in a sense. 
Because you know, I need to give him my life. I give him my heart. I give him my sin, right? All that I am, I need to give to him. All my failures, I'm happy to give those to him. But also all my hopes and dreams for the future. And nothing less is required of me. And in return, he gives me his righteousness, right? I think it's easy to read Acts chapter 8, 20 through 23, you know, not really being there, imagining in our minds maybe that Peter's just angry and disgusted with Simon. His face is red. You know, the veins in his neck, they're bulging. You know, he's screaming and spitting, yelling at Simon at the top of his lungs, rebuking Simon for offering money to buy the Holy Spirit or to buy the, the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I, I don't think that that's the way it was. And I don't think it for a few reasons. One, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 23 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. Do you have that slide? Galatians 5, 23 Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I believe Peter's in complete control here because he's being led by the Holy Spirit. He's a changed man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe Peter is just speaking the truth in love, in control. Secondly, I don't think Peter's angry and yelling and screaming because of what Peter says to Simon. Peter says to him, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. I mean, it's almost exactly what Jesus said to Peter in John 13, verse 8. He said, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I think by this time, Peter has received so much grace from Jesus. He knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it feels like to fail. And I think he's extending grace to Simon in this situation. So I think... What's going on is, is he's loving in his tone. I, I think Peter's loving in his tone as Peter's master would be. Just telling Simon what the Holy Spirit has shown him, right? About the condition of Simon's heart. And in the last half of verse 21, I think Peter is calling Simon to repentance. He's just saying with a loving tone, your heart's not right in the sight of God. Unless the Lord reveals our hearts to us, there's no way that we can repent. There's no way that we can turn from our sin asking the Lord to forgive us unless he reveals the need to repent and turn. Verse 22, Peter says, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. Now we need to understand the perhaps in this verse is not maybe, hopefully, I mean, if you're lucky, God might forgive you. That's not what it is. The question is, Simon, will you repent of your heart's wicked intentions so that God can forgive you? The idea is that maybe God will forgive you. Again, God, uh, the, sorry, the idea is not that maybe God will forgive you. The idea, uh, again, is God will forgive whoever asks for forgiveness. But the idea behind this verse is, 
God will forgive you if perhaps you will repent. And in verse 23, it says, For I see that you're, you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. <clears throat> what we see here is the real problem. Simon's heart is so poisoned and bound up by iniquity. You know, it seems to have been a barrier preventing Simon from coming to a genuine faith, a genuine belief in Jesus Christ. Because verse 4, uh, 24 says, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. He doesn't seem to be broken or repentive here, right? Because he asked Peter, hey, hey, Peter, will you pray, right? As if he doesn't want to deal with his sin. And it seems like he just wants to avoid the consequences of his sin, right? Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. <clears throat> it would seem... That pride has kept Simon from a real, genuine faith in Jesus. He was seen as a great man. He liked the title, the power of God. He enjoyed people from the least of them to the greatest singing his praises. You know, and when he saw the Spirit being poured out um, as Peter laid hands on the people and prayed, he probably thought, man, with that kind of power, I can be on top again. And Peter, with God's heart, just calls him to repentance, calls him to pray, to ask for forgiveness. Peter calls him to righteousness. But it seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, he just wanted to be spared the consequences of the sin. And I tell you, it is so sad when God shows people what changes need to take place in their life, things that they need to turn from. But they choose to continue in that sin instead of dealing with it. You know, we don't know what happened to Simon. Um, church tradition says that he left the church and he introduced the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism claims a special knowledge that only the Gnostics <coughs> can know. It teaches that all matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus, if he was God, he could not become human. He could not take on a body made up of matter and then die for the sins of people. Well, wait a minute, Gary. You know, it seems that Simon believed and was baptized. And he, he was saved, right? <clears throat> it, it does say that he believed. But James 2.19 says, You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. An intellectual belief in God and in Jesus Christ is not enough. There has to be, uh, we have to possess a belief that changes our lives, right? Billy Graham is famous for saying that there's many people who are going to miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their head to their heart, right? The belief that Jesus died on the cross for my sins is not enough. It has to filter down into my heart. It has to take root in my heart, producing a changed life within me. You know, and if it doesn't do that, then that belief is nothing. Simon believed. He, he followed Philip around. It says it continued with Philip. He probably went to church. He probably even carried a Bible to church. He probably even went to the men's study. I'll bet you he probably even, you know, attended the prayer meetings. He might have even prayed in Jesus' name. But his belief seems to be only intellectual. And his baptism 
in his mind, maybe it was just ritual, right? It seemed to all just be outward. James argues that our faith must affect the life that we live. Because James says, he says, faith by itself, if it does not possess works, it's dead. Right? He says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead also. Wait a minute, Gary, I'm confused. I thought salvation was by faith. Yes, it is. It's by faith alone. It's not faith and works. It's not faith or works. It's a faith that works. Right? Someone once said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that's true. Verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. <clears throat> How cool is that? I, I just love it. You know, these Jews who once hated these half-breed Samaritans, right, who went out of their way to avoid them, wanted nothing to do with them, are now preaching and sharing Christ with them. I mean, that's something that only the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit can do in the life of a person. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can produce a heart change in the life of a person. You know, as we close our Bibles, you know, and prepare our hearts to just sing this last song to pray, you know, I want to ask you, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have today? Are you holding back? You know, why not just pray and, and ask for forgiveness for any sin that you haven't dealt with in your life? Why not ask the Lord right now to wash you and to cleanse you from the sin and fill you afresh right now? If you ask, the Lord says he will fill you with his Holy Spirit today. He will. He promised in his word that he would do that. And, and you know what? Maybe today, if you'd be honest, you'd agree that the, there's the uh, Spirit, you know, that, that you have, the understanding that you have of the Spirit, it's just a head knowledge, right? What you have and what you understand of Jesus is just a head knowledge. You're not living the life that, that you profess, right? Your belief in Jesus is just merely outward. It hasn't yet filtered down to your heart, producing a life change. And, and you know what? Just so everybody knows, I don't have anybody in mind. I mean, maybe it isn't for anybody that's here this morning. Maybe it's for somebody uh, on watching online or somebody who's going to uh, watch this study at some later date off the website. And then again, maybe it is for somebody that's here this morning. Whatever the case may be, if the Lord is touching your heart right now, you need to respond to him, right? Ask him to fill your life with him in a way that will alter your outward behavior. You know, a faith that doesn't affect your behavior won't affect your destiny. That's the reality of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is powerful and it's searching. Lord, and I don't want to hear these words, Lord, and just because I've been a Christian for so long, you know, not examine myself. Lord, the Bible says that we're to examine ourselves. 
Lord, I don't want you to have less of me than 100%. I don't want you to have less of us than 100%. Lord, help us to surrender to that and fill us. Lord, if there's anybody here or anybody watching at home online that needs a fresh feeling, Lord, I just pray you'd speak to their heart. Even now. Lord, just lead them in a prayer of forgiveness. Lead them in a prayer of repentance. And just ask that that you would fill them afresh to be witnesses for you. To have a a, a genuine life change. Not just outward observance of, of rules and rituals, but genuine life change, a heart change where they're intimate with you, walking with you. Lord, work that in us, Lord. We want to walk with you. Work it in us, Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.